The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon, everyone. I am Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's discussion about the L1 intra-company transferee, where we will discuss common issues in RFEs and denials and how we can avoid them as employers or as employees, or in fact as lawyers, because we know many lawyers attend and participate in the Murthy Law Firm teleconference series. Joining me for today's panel are my two esteemed colleagues at the Musi Law Firm, Joel Janovich, who's a member at the firm, and Kenya Sanders, who's a senior attorney at the firm. Between the three of us, or amongst the three of us, we have at least half a century of knowledge, if not more, and we hope to be able to analyze many of these terms. To get us started, by way of background, what is an L1 status? The L1 is for intra-company transfers. This means it's someone who has worked abroad in an executive, managerial, or specialized knowledge role for at least one continuous year within the past three years before entering the United States. And this person intends to continue to work at the U.S. company related to the foreign employer in either an executive role managerial role, or specialized knowledge role. The foreign and U.S. relationship must fall into one of the law's definitions of parent, subsidiary, branch, or affiliate, or joint venture. Again, for each of these terms, the U.S. immigration law has very specific definitions. If the definitions are not satisfied, then the employee cannot qualify for the L-1 status. Obviously, every single person cannot qualify for the L1 category. While in some cases, an argument might be necessary and possible, in many cases that we have seen, someone who wants to get the L1 but does not meet the legal definition and hence would not be eligible. Along the same lines, RFEs or requests for evidence are a common tool of the USCIS often employers do not pay enough attention to documenting how all of these legal requirements are met simply because a lot of the terminology used in the L1 context is commonly used terms, but which have everyday meanings, but those can be quite different from the legal or immigration law terminology of these words. So with that, I'm going to invite Joel to basically talk a little bit about How does an employer meet or satisfy or show the qualifying relationship to to meet the statutory legal definitions? Joel? Sure. Sure. Thank you, Sheila. Um, So qualifying relationship, that's one of the the basic requirements for L1. Um, And I would say much more so than the other requirements. This one, for the most part, usually is a black or white issue. You either qualify or you don't. That's not 100% true. There are cases where it's more, a little bit more subjective. But most of the time, 
Um, what you need to show is that the foreign company and the U.S. company, um, well, th that the U.S. company, such as either a parent, a subsidiary, an affiliate, or a branch office, and there are legal definitions of that. Um, keep in mind, just because the two companies have the same name, that does not automatically mean they qualify. Uh, conversely, if they have completely different names, the foreign company and the U.S. company, that doesn't mean that they don't qualify. Um, the focus here is on common ownership and control of the entity. So, um, things that we will look at are, does the foreign entity own a majority share of the U.S. company or vice versa? Does an individual own a majority share of both companies? Um, or if each company is owned by a group of people, does each individual within that group own approximately the same share or proportion of each entity? Uh, it's, it's not uncommon. We will have calls and I'll speak with someone and they say, well, yes, I own a company abroad and I own a company in the U.S., but they're not related. They, they, we have different names and I, I don't keep their finances together. And I explain, that's okay. If you own both and you control both, they can still have that qualifying relationship, even if you in your, your head or the way you've, you've conducted business, they have not been coordinating with one another. Um, and then the, the opposite is, well, yeah, I, we own both. My, my family owns both. So my dad owns the foreign company and I own the U.S. company. Well, family relationship isn't enough um, for common ownership. You need the same person or people. So this can get complicated. There are situations where this is a gray area, but I'd say the majority of these cases, again, you either qualify or you do not qualify. Thank you so much, Joel. Okay, so next let's jump to the next issue, which is the difference between the L1A and the L1B. Uh, legally, they're totally different, even though they come under the same big umbrella of the L1 category. So, Kanya, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and discuss the differences. Okay, thank you, Sheila. So, I, the, the L1A is for managerial or executive positions, and the L1B is for specialized knowledge positions. So, I am going to talk and give you an introduction to the L1A uh, managerial uh, uh, position and what kind of positions would qualify for that, and then Joel will jump in uh, with the, discussing the specialized knowledge aspect of it. So L1A uh, managers or executives qualify for L1A. So managers are people who actively manage the organization or a portion of the organization or they manage a function, a, a major function of the organization. They either oversee the work of other supervisors, managers, or professionals, or they manage an essential function of the organization. And they have discretion over the day-to-day -day operation of the, the division, the organization, or the function that they, um, you know, uh, that they manage. And managers are people who actively manage the organization. Um, so this means that simply being called a manager is not enough. It becomes necessary to show that the person is responsible uh, for at the company, what is what is the person managing? Who is the person managing? How does he do his job? You know, while he manages other people. So it is important to note that more than fifty percent of the individual's duties has to be purely managerial. 
So when you are providing the duties and responsibilities for the position, it is important to designate the percentage of time that the individual will devote to each duty so as to illustrate that majority of the individual's duties or responsibilities are primarily managerial. So the individual, again, must be managing managers and or professionals. If they are managing non-managerial or non-professionals, then USCIS could come back and say, mm, they seem like they are like first-line supervisors and not actually managers for whom you know, the regulations were designed for. Then we go to the functional manager. Now, this is a difficult area of the L1A um, regulations. Generally, functional managers are more difficult compared with managers who oversee the entire organization or a division of an organization. The challenge with functional manager cases is that the beneficiary is actually not managing people, but they're managing a function. However, they cannot be doing the hands-on non-managerial work for the function uh, that they are responsible for managing. Now, executives are responsible for directing the management of the organization of a major component of function. They set policies and goals and have broad latitude to make important business decisions. So they operate with only minimal supervision. Generally, their supervision would maybe come from the board of directors or the chairman you know, of the company. So they function at a very high level within the organization. Thank you, Kenya. So next, let's jump to the issue of specialized knowledge. What is specialized knowledge? A specialized knowledge employee has a detailed understanding of the company's products, or services and the international markets for those products or services, or they may have advanced knowledge of the company's processes and procedures. This knowledge is one that can be obtained only through experience with that particular employer, such as experience with proprietary software, or methodologies which are unique to the employer, which is also important to the competitiveness of that company in the global marketplace. The term specialized knowledge should not be confused with the term specialty occupation that is used in connection with the H-1B petitions. The USCIS currently holds a very high standard to adjudicate L1 petitions, requesting evidence that the employer or petitioner must show that the employee or beneficiary not only possesses the specialized knowledge, but also is a key employee within the company. And part of the reason for all of this is because there was a lot of, they felt, abuse and misuse of the L1 category as soon as the H1B quota numbers or cap numbers were met, and then companies obviously started to find a backdoor method to bring their employees to the United States because they couldn't bring them on H1s anymore. Remember that the person does not necessarily have to possess specialized knowledge of something proprietary to the petitioning company, but in practice, it can be far more challenging to get the H-1 approved where there is absolutely no proprietary element to the specialized knowledge. So it's very, very helpful to have that because their attitude is, 
Well, if it's somebody you can get in the labor market, why don't you just wait for the H1 like everybody else? Next, it is not necessary for the employer or beneficiary to have held that position, the same position abroad as the one that the person intends to enter and work in the United States, as long as the person either held the job as a manager, as an executive, or worked with specialized knowledge for the L1B category. So, for example, a person who was in a specialized knowledge position abroad could be offered a position in the United States as an executive under the L1 category. However, keep in mind that in order to file the EB1C or the green card category, that person must qualify based on being a manager or an executive both abroad and in the United States. So as long as if it's only for the L1, it's definitely short-term, we could use this. Otherwise, we can't. So I've explained specialized knowledge. How about issues pertaining to RFEs with respect to specialized knowledge? I'm going to invite you, Joel, to pick up on the discussion. Yeah, um, uh, specialized knowledge in general can be a very challenging issue because you're, you're trying to show, you know, what type of knowledge this person has. How do you demonstrate that? And, and ultimately, even if you can describe what the knowledge is that the person has, you then have to evidence it because the USCIS generally is not going to just accept the employer's word. They want to see the stuff to back that up. And um, that can be very difficult depending on the circumstances. Uh, as Sheila mentioned, it does not, whatever the specialized knowledge is, does not have to be proprietary. Um, it doesn't have to be patented, you know, but ultimately, if it's not, that can make things a lot more difficult because then you're, you're basically saying, yes, there are people outside of the company that have this knowledge, but it's still specialized. And it's, it is possible under the right circumstances, but that can be very difficult. Um, so from the RFE perspective, one place where we see a lot of specialized knowledge cases and, and, and uh, therefore a lot of RFEs, um, IT firms. So um, there's a lot of, a lot of L1B cases, specialized knowledge cases, are for IT firms. And, um, you know, the, these cases have their, their unique challenges. Um, in particular, Indian IT firms, I think, most of our clients understand that they tend to fall under greater scrutiny. Um, so whenever we're dealing with something where they've developed those proprietary products or tools, again, you, you need to be able to dig in and try to figure out how you're going to explain this, how you're going to evidence this um, to satisfy the USCIS. And um, again, even if you have a proprietary software, that does not necessarily mean it's specialized knowledge. You still, even within that, you need to be able to show how that person's knowledge is special. Um, if you have, especially with companies with large numbers of, of employees, you may have more than one person with that specialized knowledge, but if it's held throughout, uh, throughout the entire company or throughout much of the company or basically all of our software engineers have this specialized knowledge and we have dozens of people in, in that position. Um, that, you know, the, the old saying, if everyone's special, then no one is special. Um, the USCIS definitely puts that into practice. So um, w whenever we're, we're dealing with these kind of issues, especially again with IT consulting firms from India, you really need to dig in and try to figure out what can I show emails, um, doc technical documents that have been drafted anything that I can respond to that, those RFEs 
and um, really explain to the officer why this person is different. Um, uh, one thing to keep in mind, if you are a, um, you know, more of a, a generic consulting firm um, versus a consulting firm with your own product, and your own project that you are you are working on. If you're just doing generic um, consulting work for for any company that comes along, very unlikely that you're going to have specialized knowledge because you're you're working on whatever that they're they're coming along and asking you to do. Versus again, if you have your own software or own tools, own way of doing things that you can show is different than your competitors. Um, in those cases, IT consulting firms at least have a, an opportunity to file these L1B cases. But again, it really depends on the circumstances and, and um, how what what it is that your company is performing. Thank you, right. Joel. And so now maybe we should talk a little bit about why it's crucial to define the specialized knowledge in RFEs and how we can overcome if there's RFEs or notice of intentions to deny. And maybe, Kenya, I would invite you to continue uh, the discussion on that issue. Sure. So to summarize, it's crucial, first of all, to clearly define what the specialized knowledge is. Then you explain with evidence how the employee gains that specialized knowledge to show that the employee, in fact, holds that specialized knowledge. And then three, Explain why the specialized knowledge is required for the U.S. position. That is, how does the specialized knowledge make the beneficiary a key employee? So, so, so these are the elements that you, know, you have to show. So when defining the specialized knowledge, it is important to isolate the specialized knowledge from common and generally held knowledge, which was what Joel was referring to. Referring to. So document the proprietary nature of the product software, such as patent documents and license agreements are very helpful in showing the proprietary nature of the knowledge. Um, if the company did create and develop the product, this can be presented as specialized knowledge, but based on each case, your MLS attorney would go over the different kinds of documents which may be used in connection with defining the specialized knowledge. To be clear, a significant percentage of these cases do not involve patented products. That can be very helpful, but if you can evidence some software tools, etc., are proprietary, even if not patented, that can still potentially work for an L1B case. And as we discussed previously, even if there is nothing proprietary, this does not necessarily exclude the person from qualifying, but it will be an uphill battle. So it will be a weak case and it will be difficult um, to show the specialized nature of the position. Now, documenting how the employee gained the specialized knowledge is often the most difficult part. For many IT companies that develop proprietary products, the L1B beneficiary may be the actual technical developer of the product. It's less of a strong case if in this software example, the beneficiary just developed some modules that are part of the software or the individual was only trained on the product and the training took a week to a couple of months. Because one of the things that you, know, you want to make is that 
it's not going to be feasible. It's not going to be, uh, you know, a, a business, um, uh, you know, a, a way to do it because it, it will take a long time in order to transmit this specialized knowledge to a new person. But if the, this person was trained only for a week or a couple of months, then, you know, you can't make that, that argument. In a situation where the beneficiary created something used by the company, you would not have received any training on the product. So then it becomes necessary to show how the specialized knowledge came to the company from the person. For each case, there may be creative ways to document how the specialized knowledge was gained. One example is project plan when developing the product that identify the beneficiary as the author. Also, some developers provide training to other employees, so you can also show documentation to show how this individual trained others in the firm on this product. Thank you, Kenya. Okay, so I think some of what I'm going to say is probably been sort of mentioned already, both by Joel and Kenya in this discussion. So to summarize, obviously it's necessary to show how the employer beneficiary gained this specialized knowledge. The easier it is for the person to gain it, as was discussed earlier, the less likely the USCIS will approve it. Instead, the USCIS will likely conclude that the knowledge is not so advanced or specialized if anybody can gain it within a very short period of time, as we explained in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. We also discussed how the specialized knowledge makes the employer beneficiary a key employee. So the USCIS believes and holds the position that if everyone holds the same level of knowledge within the company, then potentially nobody possesses, in quote, specialized knowledge, especially when the company has a very large number of employees. So the larger the company, it actually can be a, instead of a positive, a potential negative in this case. The focus is on explaining why it is not possible for the employer, the company, to move forward without having that particular employee with that knowledge and how difficult it is to be able to impart that knowledge now to a brand new employee in the U.S. Because remember, the protection of the U.S. worker is always paramount when anybody's bringing employees into the United States. So we need to distinguish the particular employee's knowledge from other similar employees within the company. Again, this does not mean that this person has to be the only employee with the specialized knowledge. But if it is too commonly held, as we explained, that's a problem. So it shouldn't be commonly held. Also, the employer or company has to present evidence of the employee's past significant achievements. It certainly will be helpful to show the monetary loss the employer would suffer if the employee is not available or cannot enter the United States to perform the L1A or L1B tasks or jobs. And showing that the work needs to be performed in the U.S. needs to be completed within a short time frame to meet either the contract or other deadlines could be another strategy to use to show that there is not sufficient time to train another employee in the United States to tr who is able to transfer that knowledge 
who's able to gain that knowledge and actually implement it to the benefit of the company or the company's clients with the knowledge of the product. So I think we've gone over a lot of this. Let's jump to the next major topic, which is how do we define managers or executives? So with that, I yeah, will so, invite again Joel. Oh, thank you, Sheila. Um, so one of the, the struggles with a lot of these L1 cases is when you're, when you're doing an L1A for a manager or executive, USCIS requires you to file it either saying the person's a manager or they're an executive or if you're going to say that, that th their duties are both managerial and executive, then you need to fully satisfy the requirements for both. You can't just say, well, I'm, I'm half manager, half executive, so I'm kind of going to split, you know, split the rules. Um, and, you know, sometimes we, we have clients, some very, very large clients, and sometimes it's very obvious that, the, that a person is an executive or a person's a manager. But from a practical standpoint, a lot of the time, a person is kind of both. And um, unfortunately, if, you know, if I had my way, this is one of – there are a number of rules in, in the L1 category that I wish USCIS would be forced to change. Unfortunately, I, I don't have that authority to do that. And so we're stuck, you know, living with these old, antiquated kind of rules. So – one of those struggles is figuring out, okay, are you filing this as a manager or as an executive, or do you really want to go to the trouble of trying to satisfy both requirements? Um, so we end up using, I think, manager a lot more than executive, um, because again, executive tends to be, it, it can just be, a, it can be a, a big struggle. But with managers, um, we're most of the time trying to, if possible, filing this as a person who is a people manager. You're, uh, you know, kind of that classical, I'm a, a person here to manage staff. And so the things that the government is going to look at are going to be how many people are you employing? What kinds of employees are, are, are you managing? Uh, um, how many people are you managing? What kinds of people are you managing? Are they professional? Are they non-professional? Are you managing supervisors? Um, and a big thing that we've seen in recent years is that where are these people? If the people that you say you're managing are all going to be abroad and you have, a, you have no staff in the U.S. or a very small staff in the U.S. and you're going to try to argue, yeah, but I have a lot of subordinates. They're just all located overseas. It's not that you're not allowed to do that. It's that we have seen USCIS give that much less weight. I think that their attitude is if you want to manage people in India or Australia or where have you, you could stay in that country. You don't need to be in the U.S. to do that. So, um, exactly. I, I, I get, yeah, yeah, so it doesn't mean you can't do it, but it is something you have to keep in mind that that can, can greatly weaken, weaken the case. Um, and you also have to show that the people are already employed. Unless you're following this as a, as a new office case, which is a you know, separate standard, you can't say, well, I have no staff in the U.S., but I'm going to come here, and the first thing I'm doing is hiring you need to qualify at the time of filing. So if you don't have the people in place, that is a, can be a big problem, and that in and of itself may be enough, for, for, or enough reason for your case to be denied. Thank you, Joel. So I think that ties in very uh, directly with the issue of what happens when a company or a business says, you know what, we're looking to expand into the United States. We have been doing business in other parts of the world, and now we feel we need to come to the number one global market in the world, and we need to have a presence in the United States of America. 
and we want to now set up a new office petition. So how does that work? There's thresholds, there are requirements, it's a shorter time frame. What's involved, Kenya? Okay, so yeah, so there is um, a category that provides for new office petitions. So when an employer, you know, a company overseas wants to expand to the U.S., they want to tap into the, you know, U.S. market, they can open what's called a new office L1. The new office L1, and the Murthy Law Firm has assisted a number of international companies transfer their executives and managers for their new U.S. operations utilizing this new office L1A petition. The unique characteristic of a new office L1A is that even though the person is L1A manager or executive, they are allowed to perform a hybrid of managerial and non-managerial work during the one-year period where they are setting up the office and they are getting the business off the ground. So. For the purposes of this new office L1 visas, a new office, they define it as an operation being in existence for less than one year. If the, oper if the business has been in existence for more than one year, they generally would not qualify for the new office L1A. So when filing an L1A petition to transfer an executive manager to a new office, the company is required to submit certain additional types of evidence with the petition, which is not normal for a regular L1A. So they have to show that sufficient physical premises to house the new office has been secured. So you can show by lease or deed, the sufficient square footage um, is, uh, you know, has been secured, including floor plan, Photos. This would help to show that you know the company's name is on the directory. The question we often hear is how much is enough? That will depend on how many people you anticipate hiring within the first year and what you plan on doing in the space. So USCIS would always come back if you show a small office. How are you going to house everyone? You know, you're saying that you're going to hire 10 people in the first year. This is only sufficient for two people. So, you know, you need to be able to, you know, satisfy that requirement. Also, even though in the modern times, uh, USCIS does not accept a virtual or shared office, it does not, you know, uh, meet USCIS requirements. Then the other requirement is the transferee has been employed for one continuous year in the three-year period immediately prior to the filing of the petition in an executive or managerial capacity, and that the proposed employment will involve work as an executive or manager in the new operation by the end of that first year. This means that if the transferee was employed in a specialized knowledge role in the foreign company, that employee is not eligible for a new office L1A, although he or she may be eligible for a regular L1A. Now, new office L1B is also possible, but it has slightly different requirements, and that we will not be addressing in the time that we have today. 
Now, evidence showing that the new U.S. company within one year of the approval of the petition will support the need for a traditional executive or managerial position, not the hybrid position that is allowed during the first year. You show this by explaining the proposed nature of the office, outlining the scope of the business, organizational structure, and financial and personal goals to be achieved within the first year and then the subsequent three to four years. The best way to do this is with a detailed business plan. And I know she Thank you, Kenya. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. I mean, my God, it's as you can understand from the discussion that Joel, Kenya, and I are having, this is really a complicated area and it's become much harder because between the USCIS and the US consulates worldwide, they are really have been looking at the entire L1 category under not just a magnifying glass, but under a microscope to really, really give, uh, you know, a hard time to a large extent because they are concerned about, within quotes, abuse or misuse of the system. Now, talking about business plans, you know, that's a critical part of the process and application with an L1 filing. So the business plan should be one that you will actually follow once the new office L1 is approved, because the USCIS is going to want to know why they should give you an extension. When you come back a year from now and say extended because I had planned to hire 10 people and you have only two people, well, they're going to be like, no, sorry, I'm not going to approve it because you promised. Because a big part of the whole L1 program also is to encourage creation of jobs. It's not the EB-5 petition. It's not an E1, E2, but it's a concept of, we don't want senior executives, managers, or those with specialized knowledge to be stuck outside because there's a potential that they could actually hire thousands and thousands of create jobs and help the economy of the particular region or the state or the country. And so it is important to stick with what was mentioned in the business plan. And so, you know, explaining why it didn't happen, it makes it a much, much weaker case at the time of the extension in year two. So what we've seen is that the employer or the new person, the business, failing to comply or go through with the business plan is a common reason for the new office extensions to be denied. Again, we tell people, don't get too ambitious. Don't say, I'm going to be hiring you know, 10 people or 25 people if you truly believe that you won't be able to hire more than three or five people. Say that we plan to grow slowly. Now, if it's too small, they may come back and say, sorry, anyway, but at least you wouldn't be a run afoul of having broken the rule. So don't make it so ambitious and unrealistic. Uh, I know we give examples sometimes of people saying, I'm going to get 100 people. Well, obviously, during COVID in the past couple of years, most companies haven't been able to even do the minimum that they thought they would be able to do because they weren't even able to barely hire anyone in the first year or two. And now there's a huge issue the other way and now I know we're talking about inflation and now they're talking deflation within a week. It's crazy what's happening in the marketplace out there. The size of the U.S. investment and the financial ability of the foreign entity to pay the beneficiary salary, the L1A or L1B salary, and to commence business in the U.S. is important. So the USCIS typically wants to see the actual evidence of money that the foreign company will be investing in the new business entity in the United States to ensure that it will be adequately financed and funded. So USCIS is now routinely requesting evidence that the foreign company 
will actually wire or transfer its captive contribution to start the U.S. entity's operations. The investments generally typically should be consistent with the captive contribution and the operational expenses as indicated in the business plan. The structure of the organization uh, of the foreign entity is also necessary, and it is used to show where the executive or manager is in the hierarchy within the entire organization globally and within the United States. These special factors are in addition to all of the L1 petition requirements that we just talked about. So this is specific for L1As where, uh, and L1 requirements where we're talking about a new office and the business plan requirements. So generally, new office L1 petitions are approved, as we said, just for one year, which means that an extension must be filed on behalf of the employee within the one-year period. And ideally, we can even file it within six months, though in six months, the business may not have you know, grown a lot, but that will basically really make a difference to show that the transferee employee will be functioning in the managerial capacity. So let's talk about the new office petition extensions, Joel. Sure, I'll be brief on this. I mean, ultimately, the new office extensions can be very challenging. They don't have to be, but um, the, the first thing we want to look at is the business plan, what is it that the company said they were going to do within a year, and did you do it? So obviously not everything is going to be identical when, when you're doing uh, financial projections. You're not going to get it down to the dollar. But did you substantially meet what you indic indicated you were going to do, the number of sales, the number of employees you hired, et cetera? If you did that, then most of the time the new office extension is, is you know, not – so challenging. Unfortunately, as Sheila alluded to, sometimes we, we will often see companies that are far more ambitious or circumstances just didn't pan out as they planned. You know, things with COVID was certainly has been a big issue with, with new office extensions where things were, you know, no, who could have predicted this? So um, ultimately, what you want to be able to show with the new office extension is that you are now in a position um, as the manager where you are not generally performing non-qualifying duties. It's the majority of your duties, and, and, you know, we want to show as much as possible. If, if not 100%, we, uh, you know, you don't want to just do 51% as qualifying duties. Um, you want as many as possible, even though that would technically meet the requirement. Um, you need to be able to show that, that your subordinates are generally doing the ha more hands-on work, that you are truly managing. And um, if you can show that, great. If not, there are times where we have seen USCIS approve an, a second one-year extension as a new office to, to give the company more time. That's not guaranteed. That's kind of inconsistent. And so, um, again, I go back to when you're – the time to start preparing for the L1 extension is the time when you're filing the initial L1 new office because, you, you again, that business plan – that's going to be our roadmap for the L1 extension. And if, if you didn't come close to meeting those requirements, if you're way off, it's going to make the, the L1 extension much, much more challenging. Thank you, Joel. And I'll have you invite you, Kenya, to sort of briefly explain what's required to file the L1 extension just procedurally because I want to be sensitive that we always try to make these conference calls between 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, for HR and employees and employers to participate. So let's touch upon that and try to wrap up as usual. 
Go ahead, Kenya. Sure. So this is just to give you a bullet point uh, summarizing what, you know, Joel talked about. So for after the completion of the one year in New Office L1A, you must show evidence that the U.S. and foreign entities are still qualifying organization, evidence that the U.S. company has been doing business for the previous year, statement and documentation describing the staffing of the new operation, including the number of employees and types of positions held, accompanied by evidence of wages paid to these employees. So you need to kind of document that these employees are actually on board. And then also evidence of the financial status of the U.S. operation. Another critical part of the requirement in filing the extension is that for the beneficiary, for the L1A um, visa holder, you have to describe what the individual performed during the, the first one year of the L1A and then what are his duties and responsibilities going to be going forward. So this is, this, it is a problem to not provide both. And USCIS does issue RFPs if you do not um, include an explanation of what was done during the, the first new office year. Thank you very much, Kenya. So as you can imagine, when you're preparing, uh, when you as the employer or even as an employee, if you're requiring the employer to prepare the, H the L1 extension petition, many employers, companies will find themselves caught between two conflicting needs. The first one, of course, is to minimize the expenses uh, in terms and that, that would delay hiring new employees, which are the practical business needs. And the, the desire to expand the business and establish an executive or managerial position for L1 purposes in the United States. And therefore, it is very important to plan ahead, uh, obviously working with a lawyer or law firm or your legal team like the Muthi Law Firm team. I know Joel does this routinely at the firm. He's, in, he's a part of the leadership team for the L1s. Uh, it can make a big difference in how do you plan, how do you strategize, how do you build your business plan. So we have to very carefully consider the immigration consequences of all of those plans because one is the reality, but the other is ensuring that your key resources are allowed to stay here and file the extension because you don't want to get a one year after spending tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and then only finding you can't get the extension. And we generally find that USCIS gives either little to no weight to statements like, you know, to be hired, uh, or they don't look at contract employees to the same extent, the same as favorably as they would a full-time employee that's being hired because now they feel comfortable about, confident about the jobs being created in the United States um, to help the U.S. economy and help the business. So if we can try to conclude scrutiny of a petition for compliance with all the different aspects of the L1 laws, regulations, policy memos, guidance, has obviously heightened over the past, I would say, 10 to 15 years. It is expected to continue to be challenging, but it is a very valuable category that is very, very helpful and beneficial for international companies who are seeking to develop a business or grow their presence in the United States and to transfer either senior executives or managers or uh, their specialized knowledge workers to continue to grow the business to help both the company and the U.S. economy. 
So I know we could continue on and on, but on be, I want to make sure that, as I said, we're sensitive. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Mursi, our uh, brilliant team of my colleagues this afternoon, Joel Janovich and Kenya Sanders, as well as all of us at the Mursi Law Firm, we want to wish you, uh, thank you for participating and joining us today, and to wish you a happy, safe, and healthy summer and looking forward to continuing the discussions with you next month. We do not take a summer break for continuing to educate, empower, and enlighten each of you as employers, employees, or families going through the process. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Take care and have a good afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.